Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. We're grateful for your word. May the word of Christ dwell in us richly. May your spirit bring it alive and convince us of truth. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not sure if you ever wonder about these things or not, but I, on the screen, when we have readings or various assignments, sometimes it says deacon. And right now, we do not have a deacon in our church, but we do have two deacons, actually. Uh, Father Peter and I both are ordained presbyters, but we will always be deacons. And so we were deacon first, then we became presbyters. And, uh, and so whenever it says deacon, that's either of us could do that role. So we switch roles periodically. And today is my day to preach, so his day to serve as the deacon. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth II uh, was the longest reigning monarch of, in English history. Upon her death on September 8th, the 96-year-old queen had reigned over England for 70 years and 214 days, surpassing the record of Queen Victoria, who reigned 63 years in the 1800s uh, during the Victorian age. And uh, he, she surpassed her by almost exactly seven years minus two days. For the majority of us, Queen Elizabeth was the only Queen of England that we have known. Uh, She started reigning in 1952. I was born in 1957. You can do your own math and figure that out. But uh, she's the only one we have known. And even though we're independent of Great Britain, to a certain extent, we sort of thought of her as, I did anyway, our queen, my queen. Uh, Some of us are Anglophiles. We like things that are British and English. Uh, You can tell that by our addiction to serial shows such as The Crown or The Great British Baking Show, and we watch those things regularly. Our experience of kingship and monarchy in the modern world doesn't necessarily prepare us to understand the biblical idea of what it means that Jesus Christ is king, reigning over his kingdom. In the ancient world, when scripture was written, most monarchies were absolute in power, And a single person, typically a male, reigned autonomously, a self-ruling individual, not with a constitution, but ruling by his own power, by his own might, and making his own rules as he went, and ruled until his death. Uh, Very rarely did they abdicate their throne. Sometimes they were removed from their throne by an untimely death, and maybe a violent death, but typically they were until death. Many of the people in the ancient world who became rulers thought of themselves as individuals who'd received their kingship from the divinity, from the divine realm, and so they were reigning as God's emissary upon earth. Some of them in some countries had the idea that the the one who was reigning not only was appointed by God, but also was God themselves. In the the nation Israel, we know that there was a sense in which the king was anointed by God, anointed by the prophet, and made uh, king over the land. In Egypt and Rome, you have the idea that the ruler was a divine being himself, or I was going to say, you know, herself, but that really ever happened, (laughs) Um, modern in my views. Uh, So anyway, you you have this sense, and so when you have Domitian reigning in the 90s, who was over, uh, who basically was probably responsible for John being on the Isle of Patmos, uh, he titled himself Dominus Edus, Lord and God, over all the people of Rome. So you have this sense of uh, absolute monarchies. These monarchies were hereditary, passed down from father to son in most cases. 
Uh, if you didn't have a male heir, sometimes that created a problem. Our early uh, history of the Anglican Church has a story of Henry VIII, who did not find uh, Catherine of Aragon to be an acceptable heir, and he kept seeking a male heir and created all kinds of havoc uh, in the church. <clears throat> Some of the Roman emperors, uh, if they did not have a suitable heir, they would adopt someone who they chose and appointed to be their successor. And some of those adopted heirs and rulers were Tiberius and Nero and Trajan and Hadrian and Marcus Aurelius. They were not uh, biological successors of their fathers. So we have in the ancient world absolute hereditary monarchies. Ever since the Magna Carta was signed by John, King John of England in 1215, you have a sense in which kingship has been controlled in the Western world. The rebellious barons met him at Ruddymead and forced him to sign this document which said that the king is not an absolute ruler. The kingdom must agree with his barons and his uh, aristocracy in order to rule. And so from that point on, you have sort of a limited sense of monarchy, a constitutional monarchy. So when you see Queen Elizabeth and you see King Charles in their operation, they are operating not as absolute hereditary monarchs. They are constitutional monarchs who have limited power, and parliament really has the center of power, and that's really where things fall in this, in this modern world. Do we have any absolute monarchies in the world today? Saudi Arabia, Oman, Swaziland, most of them are all uh, limited monarchies or constitutional monarchies such as England, Belgium, France, Jordan, and Sweden, and many, many more. So with all of that, how do we understand monarchy, kingship, and kingdom when we read it in Scripture that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he reigns over a kingdom. I want to divide this up into two parts. First of all, dealing what do we, understand, what do we mean when we say Jesus Christ is king, understanding his kingship, and then secondly, looking at the sense of, okay, well, what about his kingdom? What is his kingdom over which he rules? So first, understanding the nature of the king. How do we understand the kingship of Jesus, or I would even say the kingship of God, and those two are synonymous, I think, in our Christian theology? God's kingship is three terms, absolute, universal, and eternal. Eternal in the sense it's non-hereditary. He rules forever from one pole to the other of time. God is absolute in his power and authority. <clears throat> There's no constitution that has ever been written that limits God and his authority. Have there ever been rebels who try to limit God's power and deny his authority over their lives? Absolutely. But no one has been successful to limit God's power. He always prevails. He will always prevail. What distinguishes God's absolute rule over the world and any absolute ruler among human beings who have ruled are two things. One is the character of his person. God is righteous. The other is the nature of his rule. God is just. And so his nature is righteous, his rule is just, and so he always does that which is good in his absolute rule. His reign is universal in its scope. There's no spatial limits to his sovereignty. He rules everywhere in our entire universe, some of which we're just discovering uh, through telescopes. And God's reign is eternal in its duration. He has no heir. He has no need for a plan of succession. There's never been, nor will there ever be a time when God is not absolutely in control of all things, even if in our minds we do not think God is in control. Our lectionary uh, uh, text that we have appointed for today, Jeremiah 23, was most revealing of this respect. 
Jeremiah posits God as king, but he also posits him as another category, not just a king, but a shepherd king, a king who shepherds his people. He has a flock. He has a people. He has a land that he cares about deeply. And he has given authority to delegates to lead his people and shepherd his people. But these shepherds, these kings, these princes, these prophets, have not uh, uh, even priests and prophets, have not been faithful. These under-shepherds have not been faithful to God. So God is the ultimate shepherd, says, you have not been giving attention to my sheep. Well, I'm going to give some attention to you. And he gives them some attention. He's going to dismiss them from their role of being shepherds over God's people. And so God has delegated some of his sovereign rule and character. He delegates it to lower authorities. And he also demands that uh, they follow his character. And so what is our God like in this text? He's absolute in authority. He's righteous in his character. And because he's righteous in his character, he has moral authority in what he does and what he says. He's just and benevolent in his dealings with humanity, which is a two-edged sword. He's just and benevolent. He's patient in his actions. At times, it makes us feel like God is neglectful. He doesn't pay attention. He's, hey, are you awake? Do you know what's going on down here? And uh, Or absentee. But nothing escapes God's attention, and every action will receive its just recompense of reward. There will be judgment in the end. And lastly, God is futuristic in his outlook. When you read through uh, Jeremiah 23, it says, It was pointing to the day when he would raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The passage is pointing forward to the Messiah's coming into the world, Jesus Christ, to reign as king. Psalm 46 gives us similar expressions where the shepherd king is reigning over us and the people sense safety and security and they call God their refuge and strength, a very present help and trouble. So we know the nature of our king. He's absolute in his reign. He's universal in his reign. He's eternal in his reign and he's benevolent. He's righteous and he's just. So what is the nature of his kingdom? Whenever you're studying uh, the Bible or anything you're studying, one of the things you have to be very careful about is the meaning of terms. Voltaire said he would never argue with anybody about any matter unless they define terms before they began. It's probably a good practice. When you come to this word kingdom in Scripture, you've got to be very careful because there are different meanings to the term kingdom. One of the rules of understanding and study is that context determines meaning. And if there's a different context, that term, even though it's the same term, might not mean exactly the same thing. So when you're studying kingdom in Scripture, you're going to find at least four different understandings of kingdom in the various passages of Scripture. The first, I would say, is the eternal kingdom of God. And notice the 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 temporal expressions here. The eternal kingdom of God, the temporal kingdoms of humanity, temporary in that sense, human government, the mediated kingdoms of God among the kingdoms of humanity, which is a subset of the former, and then the unending kingdom of Christ the King. And let me explain those to you and give you a sense of what's going on in the story of Scripture and how God exhibits his kingship. The first sense of meaning is the eternal kingdom of God. Whenever you hear this term, kingdom of God, you really ought to be thinking about God's reign or God's rule over all things. It's just his reign or his rule. And as we've said, it's absolute, it's universal, and it's eternal. Regardless of what things look like upon the earth, regardless of the appearance of things or the conditions of things on the earth, God is the ruler of all things. 
there's a hymn that I love. It's called, This is My Father's World. And the line I love the most is, that though the wrong seems off so strong, do you know it? He is the ruler yet. That though the wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. God allows free choice in his creatures, and his his creatures choose to rebel and go their own ways. Even at that moment, God is absolutely in control. Nothing happens outside his authority and power to control. He rules his entire creation, his entire universe. The creation's existence, its order, its beauty, all proclaim his glory and his goodness and his greatness. Creation's brokenness, our fallen world where it does not work, is a reflection not so much of God's limited power as his will, his permissive will, to give his creatures the freedom of choice. And we have brought consequences upon ourselves. Colossians 1 says this kingdom of God is not just uh, something of the Father, but is also of the Son. And as we read through this text, the dominion of Jesus Christ comes forward where he's called the firstborn of all creation. When you hear that expression, it does not mean that Jesus Christ is the first created being. Uh, Arius in the early church taught that Jesus Christ had a time when he was not, that he was created by God, and he became the ruler of the world by God's appointment. That is not Christian theology. Jesus Christ has always existed from all time and all eternity as the Son to the Father. And so there was never a time when he was not. He has always existed. So when he's called the firstborn of creation, it doesn't mean that he's the first created thing. It means that he is preeminent over all his creation. He rules over all of his creation. He is the head of all things. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses teach the same teaching in the modern world today, lessening the authority and nature and person of Christ. So as this preeminent Christ, listen to what our text says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. When you think about the kingship of Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom, you need to be thinking about the fact that whether it's authorities or powers, things visible or invisible, he is ruler of it all. He is preeminent in all of his creation. His rule reflects his authority, his attributes of grace and glory, his activities. And there are three implications of this sense of God's eternal kingdom, which is equivalent to his providence. Whenever you use the word providence, you're basically saying God's rule. God's God's, uh, entitlement to rule all things. Three implications. No person, thing, or event is outside of God's eternal rule. Nothing ever happens. It is not under God's authority or his power to control. Because he is the creator, ruler, and sustainer of all things, there is a universal ethic or good that is present in all things. It's intrinsic. It's overarching. There is a standard by which we all need to align ourselves. It is the righteousness of God. And so there is no uh, sense in which we determine our own good. It is determined by God. And thirdly, everything and everyone will be held accountable under God's rule. There will be a judgment and God will bring, make all things right. To some, that's a comfort. (laughs) To others, it's not so much of a comfort. But God will judge. He will bring all things to equity. That's his eternal kingdom. That's his eternal rule over all things. This includes the kingdoms of humanity. So let's look at that second category, the temporal kingdoms of humanity. 
When God willed to create, he determined that his creatures would have the capacity to choose, the capacity to make choice. And so in the angelic realms first, there was rebellion against God. And then in the earth, there was rebellion against God as Adam and Eve chose to rebel against the order that God had set up. And because of that, God cursed his creation. And when he cursed his creation, this cosmos that had been created out of chaos, ordered, cosmos means ordering, this cosmos that he ordered out of creation had chaos entered into it again, where things still worked, but they didn't work as perfectly as they did before. It's the frustration that's part of uh, the creation. We all know it. We, we see it every day. Uh, creation is not so disordered that we are all falling away in, 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 into chaos, but uh, that order has a lot of faults with it in the contemporary time. And so God cursed his creation, and death entered. And to prevent tyranny and to restrain evil upon the earth, God chose for societies, groups of human beings, to be able to, to order themselves by creating human government. And so they were able to establish governments and establish rules and principles by which they governed themselves so that no one would be free to kill or murder or do all types of things. So we have human government, and there, is, there are rulers in our governments, but by their very nature, they're all flawed. They're all broken. All the systems of the world are flawed. And God ultimately will hold nations accountable for the administration of their justice. One of the prayers that the Anglicans have that we have in our suffrages during morning prayer is a prayer related to the nations. And listen to this prayer. It says, O Lord, guide those who govern us and lead us in the way of justice and truth. The acknowledgement in there is there are sometimes when our governments are not just and they're not truthful. And so it is God, bless those who govern us and guide us in the way of justice and truth. So you have the nations of the world. And they exist, and they're flawed, but they do create some sense of order, some sense of uh, non-tyrannical reign, so that we can all live to a certain degree in peace. That's what we're to pray for in First Timothy chapter uh, is it three, four. It's right in there. There's a prayer that we're supposed to pray for the nations and pray for kings, that we might live a life of peace upon the earth. In the midst of all that, God has willed to identify a people, to call out a people who will call upon his name, who will follow his precepts and will embrace his will. I would call this the third category, which is a subset of the kingdoms of the earth, but it's a mediated kingdom of God. God has chosen certain individuals, certain people groups to represent his character and to assert his authority in the earth. He's called them forth to give a foretaste and a taste of his glory and his goodness. And God has carved out these people by covenant. And as you read through Scripture, watch for this very important term of covenant, where God establishes a covenant typically with a human person who is to represent the people of God. He communicates with God, but he also rules for God in his reign. Adam had that covenant, Adam and Eve in the garden, to subdue creation, to fill and rule the earth, which obviously failed, but it continued after the fall. Noah had a covenant. God made with him where he would establish a relationship with Noah and his family. And if you read carefully that passage in uh, Genesis chapter 9, the covenant that God made in Genesis 9 was with Noah and is with his family, but it also says with all the creatures of the earth. That's a beautiful thing that it was made also with the creatures of the earth. I think sometimes we miss that concern of God in his rule. The most famous covenant was the Abrahamic covenant, 
where in Genesis chapter 12, God selected out Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I will, I'll make you a land, a seed, and a blessing, and you will go forth into the world. And this Abrahamic covenant really is a foundational covenant related to salvation and related to biblical history. And it was reiterated to Isaac and Jacob and to the successors in uh, the, the Jewish people. The next covenant is the Mosaic covenant, which God gave to Moses. I, I equate the Mosaic Covenant to a constitution like we have of the United States. It constituted the people of Israel. It gave them rules and guidance for their moral life, for their spiritual life, for their civic life. And so all of it was guided by them. And then we come to the Davidic Covenant when God is establishing rule. When Israel finally gets into their land, they go through the time of the chaos of the judges. And finally, God establishes the monarchy. He establishes the kingdom of Israel. And Israel starts out with a king who was not appointed by God, but then you have a king, David, who becomes the center of the covenant. And God says, I will establish my rule and you'll be my people. And there's a call for obedience in the midst of that. And so God's nation was established. You watch the history of Israel. We read it in the Old Testament. We find that it goes through all kinds of different phases. It stays unified under David and Solomon. The kingdom's divided under Solomon's successors. The northern kingdom is judged in 722 and goes off into exile. And in uh, uh, 586, you have the the southern kingdom of Judah also going into exile because of their disobedience to God. God brings them back from exile under Nehemiah, reestablishes the people. They live in the land for a number of years and, uh, and have God's peace upon them with a second temple. And then finally you come to the time of Christ and they did not accept Christ. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. You had the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70. Then in 132, 135, Hadrian sends the Jews off to the world and they were outside of their land for 1900 years, 1900 years and returning as an unregenerate nation in contemporary times. So the story of Israel is the story of God's people and from the From the time of Christ, essentially, to today, the question we should be raising is, well, where's God's kingdom on the earth? The Jews were God's kingdom. when they were. Is it it now in Israel today, or where is it? Where's God's kingdom? And let me say this plainly. God's covenant relationship with the nation of Israel is unique in human history. There's only one nation in human history that God made a covenant with to establish as his people. We have this in the biblical record, and there are others, others who make claims that they are a covenanted people of God, that they are like Israel or their contemporary Israel. We are Israel today. That claim has no biblical or biblical theological basis. Psalm 147.20 extols Judah and Jerusalem and says, He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. And so there's this sense of uniqueness of Israel. They're called to be the people of God. They were called to represent his character, his authority, to proclaim Torah life throughout the world. But they failed. And so you ask, okay, well, where is it today? It's kind of interesting when you watch Christian history since the time of the New Testament, you find there are different times when people groups, certain individuals identified themselves as being God's emissary and that God was starting a new thing and they represented the people of God in a special way or they were God's people. It starts with Constantine. Constantine legalized Christianity and allowed Christianity not to be persecuted anymore. And Eusebius of Caesarea, who was a bishop of the church, got so excited about 
what God was doing in that day, that he declared that Constantine was the 13th apostle. It's like, wow, okay, <laughs> the power to proclaim that. And there was some sense in which Constantine was this Christian ruler and everybody under him is Christian, but obviously it was not true because the Roman Empire was very much pagan in those days. In the year 800, Christmas Day, December 25th, Pope Leo III <clears throat> determined that he would make an individual the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And, and Charlemagne was crowned by Leo III. What, what is the Pope doing crowning this Holy Roman Empire? But he was establishing God's rule upon the earth through the Pope's authority, through his own vision. And, and, and Charlemagne became the ruler over Christendom, this kingdom of God upon the earth. And from there, you have different nations of Europe claiming to be the people of God. You have it in Germany, you have it in France, you have it in Spain, you have it in Italy. They're all claiming to be, especially the people of God, constituted by God to represent God's authority, similar to Israel. When you come to England, England has its own story. Uh, Venerable Bede wrote the ecclesiastical history of the English-speaking people. And in that, he posited the story of, of England to be the same as the story of Israel. God's gathering these people. He's bringing them together. He's establishing his authority. And now England is the nation of God. It is the constituted people of God. And they go off and they conquer the world and they're representing God's authority and God's crown. And you say, that doesn't work. <laughs> how, do, how is it that all these nations can claim to be the, the constituted people of God? Well, we do it here in the United States as well. You move to the United States, we have people within our midst who are claiming that our nation was covenanted by God, that we are especially the people of God, that somehow we are instituted as a, as a sense that we represent God's authority in the world, and we are unique among all the nations of the earth. And when you look at that biblically and historically and, and theologically, it's terribly flawed. Be very careful as you hear individuals promoting Christian nationalism, and I'm not saying this as a, an attack upon any political denomination that is a falsehood that is not to be promoted in, in Christ's church. Um, there's a sense in which God has blessed our nation in marvelous ways. We had many Christians there at the beginning of the formation of our nation, and you can see uh, virtues and morals instituted into our laws. But it is not that God was making a new Israel. We're not a new Israel. That's biblically flawed. But we are a nation that has been blessed. And we've been blessed because a lot of Christians are here and, and virtuously uh, showing forth their uh, principles and their uh, righteousness through their goodness. When we are fighting for control, that's when we get in trouble <laughs> and try to take over and try to usurp uh, political power. So you ask, or I, if, you, if you ask me the question, where is the kingdom of God today? And I'll say two things. The kingdom of God is in every nation in general, but it's also in no nation in specific. The kingdom of God today is a mystery. The kingdom of God is Jesus Christ reigning as Lord and King, but not physically over the earth. It's a spiritual reign. And the kingdom of God is a mystery. How is it showing up? Is it physical? Is it tangible? Is it, is it geographical? Is it ethnic? Is it national? No. It is a spiritual kingdom over which Jesus Christ is reigning. That brings us to the unending kingdom of Jesus Christ. Our Jeremiah passage spoke of the righteous branch who would reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which he shall be called. 
The Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh Sitkenu. The kingdom of God was commenced by Jesus in a very unique way, but it was not consummated in his first coming, his first advent. The Jewish scriptures look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, but it sort of collapsed together, first and second coming. There was no clarity in the Old Testament that Jesus Christ would come twice. When Jesus Christ came, we learned, and the New Testament teaches us, and the New Covenant teaches us, that Jesus Christ came first to die for our sins and to rise again so that we might have everlasting life. And that decades and centuries and millennia later, it didn't say that in the text, Jesus Christ would come again. And he would establish his kingdom upon the earth. And so you have two comings. And you had no idea how large the space was between the first coming and the second coming. It was just space created there, temporal space. And so the kingdom was commenced by Jesus, but it was not consummated by him. We await the consummation in the future. So when you watch Jesus teaching, what is the kingdom of God? He's telling people about the kingdom he has all these things that are, some are plain and some are parables and some we just say, okay, I'll wait to see how that's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is near at hand. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like an individual who finds a precious stone in the middle of a field and go and sells all that he has and comes back and buys the field so that he can have that special jewel. The kingdom of God is like a sower who sows seeds in the earth and some seeds fall on hard ground. There's no root. Some seed falls on shallow ground. There's a little bit of root and the sun comes up and, and when the flower comes up, it fades away because of the heat. Some seed falls on ground that's thorny and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches cause that life to be unfruitful. But some soils are, are, are cultivated and they yield fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. That's the kingdom of God. What does that say? <laughs> what is that saying about the kingdom of God among us? And on and on it goes. <clears throat> I find one of the clearest statements of Scripture about the kingdom of God comes from Paul's writings in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Paul asserted, The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. You can live that. You can live that kingdom life. You can have a crowd of people, mixed people, some Christians, some not Christians. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is not there. The kingdom of God is here. It's not there. Because the kingdom is reigning over lives that are calling upon the name of the Lord and that acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. So it's reigning here, but not here. It's here, not here. And we wait to the end of the age when weed and tares growing up together are separated. And the tares to judgment and the uh, wheat for reward. Do we look for a tangible kingdom upon the earth before the final judgment? There are many Christians who believe in a millennium, believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. There's a passage in Revelation chapter 20 that six times in that passage it says 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years. And many Christians have made that to be, okay, he's going to reign on the earth for 1,000 years. <clears throat> Many Christians throughout the centuries have not felt like that should be taken literally. 
Christ will reign. He will reign one day. So they reject this 1,000-year millennium. I don't have any certainty about that whatsoever in my spirit. <laughs> will he reign on the earth a 1,000 years? No, I don't know. I do know that when he does come and when he does set up his kingdom, it will have an unending kingdom. It will be forever and ever. And he will judge and he will reward in that coming. But what is certain in this time? What is certain for right now? I would say the certainty is that Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Christ is reigning spiritually in the lives of those who acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The thief was hanging upon the cross, and the Romans placed in a mockery a sign over his said, head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. What's, what's very fascinating is that this, uh, this, uh, this uh, sign was written in three languages, Latin, Greek, and Aramaic, the three common languages of the day. And what was meant as mockery has now become a sign of triumph. Many times when you see a cross... It's not, not on this one, but many times on a cross, you see the initials I-N-R-I. That is the initials for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's a sign of triumph. It's not a sign of mockery that the Romans intended. And so Jesus Christ is reigning. And even though the rulers were mocking him with that sign, it's a signal that he reigns. One of the thieves was uh, mocking Jesus and the other one was recognizing Jesus was unworthy of his crucifixion as much as he deserved his. And he called upon Jesus and said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what was Jesus' reply? Today, today you shall be with me in paradise. Did Christ go into his kingdom? Absolutely. Was it a physical reign over the earth in some geographical space over some ethnic people and, and nationality? No. It was a spiritual reign of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter eleven fifteen says, One day in the future, when Jesus Christ comes again, the, kingdoms of, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And you can trust that. But don't look for it in human institutions today because they're all flawed. And the kingdom of God is present in the midst of it all, but it's nowhere in specific in any one nation. I've given you a lot, so let me give you takeaways related to the three types of kingdom. The temporal, what about the eternal kingdom of God? You can be confident in God's sovereignty and providence in the world. Trust it. Rely upon it for your daily life. You can trust that his absolute rule is conditioned by the righteousness of his person and the justice of his actions. You can trust his justice. You're safe and secure even when you think you're not. God is at work even when you do not see him and even when you see evidence to the contrary. God is present. God is working. And everything will work for the good of those who love God and obey God. And that's how his providence shows up in the world. God is able to take all the things that are horrible and horrific in life and flip them upside down and bring his glory and our good out of it. That's his sovereignty. That's his providence showing up in powerful ways in this broken, fallen world. Julian of Norwich has written, All will be well, and all will be well, and every kind of thing will be well in the providence of God. What about the temporal kingdoms of humanity? I would encourage you to always acknowledge the temporal kingdoms of humanity, that they are ordained of God. 
that calls upon us to honor those who have authority over us, whether presidents or kings or dictators or individuals of our party or not of our party. We're to honor them. Pray for justice and truth to prevail by God's intervention. Pray for peace, and not just for physical peace, but pray for shalom. Pray for the well-being of God to rest upon our people and our lands and the lands of the world. Obey the laws, even the laws you don't like. And obey God rather than man. When you are commanded by our government to do things that are contrary to the will of God, stand for truth, stand for righteousness, but be willing to pay the price for that stand. And sometimes it's ultimate. And the one caution I give you under temporal governments again is, do not claim, be cautious to claim, that God has constituted any people in the modern world as alone their God's constituted covenanted people. That's a denial of, of the historic truth of the Christian faith. It's a denial of the reality of the global church that's present all over the world. It's really a, it's really a prideful thing that comes from the heart of humanity that's, that's broken and fallen. And it's a desire for control and power. And we need to call it out for what it is. What about the universal unending kingdom of Jesus Christ? Live in the righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Live in the righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Live as children of light and love. Let your light, re- life reflect the character and dominion of Christ your Lord. And give him alone your loyalty and your absolute uh, allegiance. Patiently endure all things until he returns. And seek to bring others into Christ's reign of light and love. Our mission in the church is to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature, bringing them into the kingdom of God so they might be also be translated from the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of darkness, into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that calling is upon us as children of the kingdom. I end my sermon with a call for peace of the world. Eternal God, in whose perfect kingdom no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness, no strength is known but the strength of love, so mightily spread abroad your spirit that all peoples may be gathered under the banner of the Prince of Peace, to whom be dominion and glory now and forever. Amen and amen.